All right. Well, I can remember reading a number of years ago, I read a a book uh, by uh, Larry Crabb, I think it is, called The Safest Place on Earth. And there's one story that stuck with me. I, I, uh, I can't quite get it out of my head. And so when I, when I share on, on a topic like we are today, this story always comes to mind. So I thought I'd, I'd share it with you. He says this, he says, it was a, a sight I could never forget. He said, I've tried in the past 25 years uh, have passed now since I saw it, but only a few details have blurred in my mind. The broad features of the scene and most of the specifics remain as crystal clear in my memory as if I had witnessed them yesterday. Rachel, my wife, he says, and I were touring Miami Beach. We'd recently moved to South Florida from the gray Midwest and were enjoying our first chance to visit the famed Sunshine Vacation Paradise. One block west of the vacation luxury beach motels, the ones that are pictured in all the postcards, was a very ordinary big city street, noisy and dirty, heavily trafficked with cabs and buses and plumbing repair trucks. The street was lined with less than elegant businesses and shops and road dwellings, with, with the occasional green shrubbery poking its way out of the square foot of dirt in the concrete. A patch of blue sky was visible only if you looked straight up he says. No one was snapping pictures outside on this street. Nobody was going to put this in their scrapbook. At one point, he says, we walked in front of a wood-slated porch, maybe 10 feet deep uh, with perhaps along perhaps 60 feet of sidewalk frontage. And there were at least 100 chairs were arranged there in neat rows and columns, none touching, each in exactly the same position to all the others. The occupied chairs, and most of them were, he says, each held one motionless retired man or woman staring straight ahead into the city street. I can't recall seeing anyone rocking, though I'm sure somebody was. I do remember that no heads turned to follow a passing taxi or a pedestrian or to chat with another porch sitter. I didn't see any crossed legs. If I remember correctly, uh, I remember seeing somebody's stockings were bunched around their ankles. (laughs) There were no paperback novels or newspapers, not even a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea. There was no conversation of any kind, no evidence that any of these people had been created by a relational God to enjoy intimate relating with one another. These people's souls were asleep, he says, numbed, I suppose, by years of lifeless relationships and pointless conversations. No doubt these conversations had all seemed important at the time, business deals or romantic encounters, child scoldings, religious meetings or whatever, but maybe such encounters with other people had never really touched anything deeply enough to stir life. I remember thinking all of their lives, everyone on this porch worked hard in Detroit or Chicago or New York, and they dreamed of one day retiring to Florida. And now they've made it, but look at them, he says. Everything they've lived for has come to this. Lord, he said, he prayed, delivered me from living my life in a manner that will one day leave me here on a porch like this, sitting and staring straight ahead and never really turning and connecting deeply with those around me. God, spare me from that. You know what the statistics say? The stats say, This, that rocking chair picture, that staring straight ahead, that never turning towards one another, never learning to connect deeply with one another, stats would say that this is becoming the norm in our country. 
In the 1970s and 1980s, the percentage of Americans who responded that they regularly or frequently felt lonely was somewhere between 11 and 20%, depending on the study that you'd see. You know what the stats would say today? Today they would say that between 26 and 43% of Americans, between a quarter and half, depending on the study, of Americans would say that loneliness is a regular or everyday occurrence in their lives. One researcher that I read this week commented, they said, we're more connected than we have ever been in history, and yet we live in what she called the age of isolation. So many of us, we don't even know it, but we are feeding a cycle and we are trapped in a cycle that leads us down the path towards isolation and towards loneliness. We may be achieving, we may be performing, we may have thousands or hundreds of friends on Facebook, but we're starving for the kinds of deep and loving relationships and community that we are made to experience. I read a book uh, maybe two or three weeks ago and shared it with uh, some of our staff and volunteers um, what, a week or two ago? I can't remember, but it's called The Five Gears. And uh, the subtitle is How to Be Present and Productive When There is Never Enough Time. And uh, they use this sort of imagery of a stick shift, like a manual transmission in a vehicle. And they talked about learning to be in the right gear at the right time. Let me just walk you through this because I think it's fascinating. They said first gear, they sh- showed the bottom, they call recharge mode, right? That has to do with like sleeping and doing things that really fill up our tanks, fill up our souls and restore us in every way. It's first gear. Second gear, they say, is connect mode. It's the deep relationship kind of mode. It's, it's the whole turning towards one another, eye to eye, soul to soul kind of thing, and really connecting. It's when we connect oftentimes, like we can connect with our spouse or our kids, a small group of people where we're really sharing our hearts and being transparent and re- giving and receiving of love back and forth, that kind of stuff. Third gear, they, they call the social mode. That's sort of being present, but with lots of different people. Like when we hang out uh, before before or after church out in the, uh, the uh, lobby or whatever, that's probably a third gear time. Sometimes people maybe slip into second gear and really connect, but when you're kind of talking and interacting with uh, lots of different people at the same time, that's third gear. Fourth gear, they call task mode. It's the multitasking gear, working hard in a variety of things. It's sort of hopping in and out. Uh, It's sort of working, uh, maybe at work with the door open or, you know, people are popping in. You're kind of doing all kinds of things, jumping all over the place, getting stuff done, that kind of thing. And then fifth gear is what they call hyper-focus gear. It's the, go back if you can. or maybe not. Fifth gear is a, they call hyper focus, right? It's it's when it's when maybe you close the door to your office or whatever, and you start working, and maybe even hours go by, and it was like that, right? It's when you're really you're cranking, you're getting stuff done, you are you are uh, pummeling through and pushing forward, that kind of a thing. And and what they go on to say is, I mean, they said, man, so much of success in virtually every area of your life has to do with learning to be in the right gear at the right time. They said, just like in a car, if you try to, to just, you know, only use one or two gears, it's going to burn you out. It's going to do damage to the engine in your life, and it's, it's not going to be uh, what you think it will be. Well, they go on to say, uh, you know, uh, in, in talking with this whole gear, they said, you know, our culture tends to really value one or maybe two of these gears far above all the other, and our culture as a whole tends to starve one or two of the gears. If you had to guess which gear our culture is best at and which ones we as, as people maybe spend our, the most of our time in, what gear would you say? First? Okay, maybe. What, somebody else? What was that? 
four, four and five, four and five. Yeah, absolutely, right? Uh, and they kind of talk about it's convicting, but they kind of talk about so often what happens, you wake up in the morning and what's the first thing you do? You check your phone. Checking your phone throws you into fourth gear usually. You're checking your emails. You're checking your, your, your uh, text to see who's gotten a hold of me. Who do I need to respond to? How do I need to connect? Maybe you check Facebook, something like that. But they say we, so often we sort of get thrown into fourth gear and we're doing that first thing in the morning. You get in the shower and what are you doing? Oftentimes we're thinking about all the stuff we got to get done today. Right? I mean, the, the, uh, we kind of wind ourselves up during that time, and you're, you're kind of just going already. Okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. Can't forget this. That kind of thing. They say even, you know, you go downstairs, maybe you're, you're getting your kids ready for school when it is school or whatever, and so you're making breakfast. You're packing lunches. You're doing all this kind of stuff. You're going from one thing to the next, and then you get into to work, and work is certainly fourth gear, isn't it? I mean, it's fourth, fifth. If there's a sixth, you know, like maybe that, right? Like produce, right? Perform, get stuff done. This is success is sort of what our, what our culture and what our world says. Uh, you get home at night, well, there's got to be laundry to get done. You got to get supper on the table. You got to mow the lawn. We got all this kind of stuff to do. And they say, what, what happens is you do that right up to the, to the end, and then you collapse into really an unfruitful first gear. But we're, we're, you're like, I can't do anything. The best I can hope for is maybe to veg in front of the TV or my computer for an hour maybe my phone for an hour and then go to bed and the whole thing starts again. Is that true? Do we live that way? I'm sure you don't, but maybe somebody else around you does, right? I mean, that's the world that we live in. It's like, go, 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 go kind of thing. And again, what they say is, man, we do that and we are starving all the other gears and it leaves a wake of destruction in our lives, even in our souls. If I had to pick one gear that we, that we probably starve the most, I'd say it's second gear. I'd say it's re- real connecting. Because you know what? Even, even at times when that are designed for and made for connecting, like around the supper table or you go out to eat or something, you know what happens most of the time? We're doing this. I, uh, I remember we, we uh, sometimes have gone out to, uh, what is it, TGI Fridays or something? They've got good gluten-free food. So we've uh, sometimes gone out with friends or something after church and gone there uh, up kind of in northern Peoria, and it's hilarious because we'll see people come in from church. You can tell, right? They've been to church or whatever, one of the churches up there, and they come in, and there'll be like a whole family or a whole big group, and you'll look over, and there'll be like 10 people around the table all staring at their phones. Like, they're together, but they're not together. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're, they're there, but they're not connecting. They're, they might as well be on a porch in a rocking chair staring straight ahead and never even, I mean, they, they could be by themselves for all the good it's doing, Right? And as a result, you can see a wake of relational destruction that's happening in our country. I read this week, man, this is challenging. I read this week um, a stat that said uh, that dads especially, I'm a dad, so it's particularly convicting for me, spend an average of seven minutes a day in conversation with their kids. For dads with their high school boys, you want to know how much time they, on average, they spend talking and conversing, connecting, turning towards high school age boys? 20 seconds. 20 seconds. In contrast, the average teenager or the average person is spending two to five hours a day on their phone. Like, and, and you kind of look at that and you think, I wonder why there's not more, you know, co- connectivity, why there's not more, uh, you, know, you know, emotional and relational connection with our kids. Man, you think that'd do damage? Absolutely. We are made for more. One more uh, thing, and I'll, and I'll, I'll kind of get on with it uh, today, but one more stat that I found interesting this week. I read um, 
recently that the average uh, church attendance, like in, in, I'm saying this wrong, the amount of times per month that the average church attender in America attends church, is that clear? I'm not sure I communicate that well, but, but the, the number of times is decreasing, right? We're going to church less and less. Even people that go to church, they're saying, are going less and less often. The average these days is 1.6 times per month, right? Out of a four or five week Sunday, we might go once, maybe twice. That's sort of the average. And there's probably a whole bunch of reasons for that. My hunch is that most of them revolve around fourth gear, right? We've got our kids have got to be at baseball games. We've got stuff going on. Or, or maybe it's, it's that we have wound our lives so tightly with all kinds of things to do, 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 that when we get to, you know, we get to Sunday and we just collapse in exhaustion into an unproductive and, and not really, uh, not really re- refreshing first gear, right? It's, uh, but, so there's all kinds of reasons for this, right? But I mean, I think it's probably either task-related or exhaustion-related, one or the other. But, but we've, we've kind of quit going to church. And sometimes I'll have somebody that'll be honest enough to say, to say, you know what, I don't even know what the big deal is. I mean, if I want to listen to worship music, can I listen to worship music? Can I? Any moment of any day, I can pull up world-class worship tunes, right? I can, and I could worship. I could worship in my home. How about, how about messages? Do you think we have access to really good messages? Again, any moment of any day, you can pull up the best preachers in the world, and you can listen, you can listen to their last 10 series if you wanted, and people do, right? I mean, we'll listen to this kind of thing. And so, so people, in moments of honesty, have asked, what's the big deal? Why do I even need to go to church? Why do I, I mean, I can do that at home. I can do it by myself, that kind of thing. And Although there's, again, a ton of reasons and a ton of things we could get into with that. Can I just push back on one piece? I'm going to ignore sort of some of the broader spiritual pieces, if, if I can, and some of the more spiritual reasons. And I just want to talk about the, um, the value of the church, of the body of Christ meeting together. And I'm not even going to argue it. I'm just going to share a few scriptures uh, from the, the sort of God's perspective on this deal and the value. And this isn't a guilt thing. This isn't me trying to say, oh, I'm just saying, man, look, listen to the perspective on this from God because he has a very different perspective than we do. It's not just about content for God, right? There's something different that happens when we come together, when we meet together for worship and teaching and connection, when we share life together, when we live in community. Listen to a few of these. This is just fascinating to me. Uh, Matthew 18, right straight from the lips of Jesus. Uh, He says, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done. Uh, for them by my Father in heaven. He's talking about prayer. For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am with them. That's a fascinating scripture because, I, you know, kind of the, the devil's advocate in me says, says, well, what's the big deal? Isn't Christ present when I'm by myself? And the answer would be, yeah, of course he is. But there's something different here, isn't there? there there's, some, there's something different. Does, does Christ answer the prayer of one? Absolutely. But he, there's something specific here where he says, you know what? When we pray together, where two or more gather together in my name, there's something, there's something powerful about that. When we gather together, Christ is seen and experienced in more of his fullness. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. I want you to look. I, I kind of highlighted all the possessive pronouns here, the, uh, the, the pronouns that are here. It says, uh, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a reason that all of those pronouns are plural. It's, it's we and us. It's because we need one another. There is something about meeting together in worship, something about meeting together in homes and living in community. There's something about being together as believers that helps us to hold on to the hope that we profess in Christ. It's something that spurs us on towards love and good deeds when we meet together with other Christ followers. Something that encourages us to keep persevering and to keep close to Jesus until the day that he returns. And I have to say, our tendency is to not live that way, right? Our tendency is to move towards isolation more and more and more. Our tendency is to just get swept away by that kind of stuff. Just get sucked into our own lives or our own problems or whatever, and we can just isolate. I've seen it dozens and dozens. I've seen it, in fact, probably hundreds of times uh, over the last 20 years of ministry. We've seen people that... that uh, for whatever reason, like there's, there's a whole host of them, right? There's a, but people that are either exhausted or they're maybe depressed or they're discouraged. Maybe things aren't going well in their lives. Maybe they're just overwhelmed and busy. For whatever reason, they've sort of chosen to step back from church, from community. They've kind of stepped back from relationship with other Christ followers. And they thought, you know what? I'll just kind of take care of this on my own. I mean, I'm a big boy. I can podcast. I can, I can read. I can listen to Christian music. All be fine. And they have, I mean, there's great reasons and they can rationalize or justify whatever they want. And they kind of throw those things out there. And you know, what's interesting is probably, oh, I don't know, let's say half of the time, um, uh, just a made up number, but a good portion of the time, years or maybe even a decade or more later, we've had people come back uh, into the church, into the fellowship, and, uh, and they've kind of had a story to share about what the, the previous years or, or decade or whatever had been like for them. Now, how many of you, let's just take a little poll here. How many of you think they come, they come back and say, man, you know, I withdrew from uh, other Christ followers. I withdrew from worshiping together and praying together and meeting together. I kind of stepped back and just focused in on my life and my family. And I, I am so thankful that I did. How many, how, I mean, how many of you think, man, they came back and they had stories about how God had freed them and transformed them. God, God had totally brought them to life in unbelievable kind of ways. How many times do you think that's happened out of, let's say, the hundred times that we've, we've watched this happen? You think that's happened a lot of times? You think that's happened a few times? Zero, right? I have never seen that happen. I've never had somebody come back and say, I'm so glad I walked out of community, right? I'm so glad I distanced from other Christ followers. But you know what I have heard? I've heard this over and over and over and over and over again. I've heard people come back with tears saying, man, I got sucked into the biggest downward spiral of my life, right? I, I went back to old habits. I went back to old addictions, old sins that I had been experiencing freedom from. I got sucked back in and it took the life out of me. We've heard people talk about how, you know, when they withdrew, they just went further and further into depression or how anxiety got a bigger hold in their life. We've heard people talk about, man, over and over again, I've heard this comment. It was like, if only I could get those years back, I would do it differently. Because there's something powerful. There's a God-given design here that we're made not just for relationship with God, although we're clearly made for that, 
but also we're made for that kind of community with other Christ followers, those close relationships. We need them. We need them to grow. We need them to flourish. It's a big deal in our lives. It's why God says, uh, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. Genesis, right? We, he creates Adam and uh, all kinds of other people in the garden. You go to the next slide if you can. Genesis 2.18, right? It, it, God's looking around. He's created Adam. He's created all kinds of other things. He's looking around and saying, you know, for the first time in the creation story, he says, you know, this, this isn't good. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for people, for man, for man or woman. In this case, it's man, right? But it's not good for man to live in isolation. It's not good for them to live with distance between them. They need relationship with others. And so God comes back to the table. He creates someone to be with Adam. He creates Eve, right? Puts them together in the garden. And then he steps back. He kind of, you know, like a, like a painter or a whatever. He takes a look and he says, oh, this is very good. He says, this is how it was meant to be. And he's not just talking about marriage or, you know, guy-girl relationships. He's talking a broader principle here, saying it's not good for, for people to live in isolation. We are made for relationship with each other. We are made for intimacy with one another. It's not good for man to be alone. You see this kind of principle taught throughout the Bible, right? This, this whole idea that we are made for relationship. We're made for intimacy with God and with others. Uh, of course, classic uh, scripture here, Mark 12. Uh, somebody's asking Jesus, what's the most important points in the law? And he says, it's two things, right? That life, it, life, and really all of the Bible is going to highlight two specific things. It's going to be love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And he says the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. He's like, there's nothing better. It's, it's relational though, right? It's nothing better than loving God with all that you are and loving other people as yourself. Learning to live in community, in relationship, back and forth with those that are around you. Jump ahead to the early church, and man, you see this whole idea of community bubbling to the surface. Acts uh, 2, 42 is where you kind of read the, the story of the first church um, that Jesus, Jesus kind of initiated and, and his followers then kind of gather together. And this is a snapshot of what they look like. It's the early church. They, the early Christ followers, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. You know what the fellowship is? What's fellowship? Come on. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. What does that mean? Yeah, people, right? One another. They devoted themselves to the church, to the other Christ followers, to the, to the body of Christ. Absolutely. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, um, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, it says, they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anybody as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts in a large group setting, but they also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I just want you to notice just a couple of quick things about community here. Uh, can it... it this passage describes the type of relationships, the, time, the type of community they were experiencing. First of all, it says they were devoted to each other, to the fellowship, to the church. They were devoted, sure, they were devoted to the mission of the church and to growing and all these kinds of things, but they were also committed to one another, it says. 
They were involved intimately in each other's lives. They were eating together on a regular basis. They were worshiping together on a daily basis. They were sharing their hearts and their lives with each other. If somebody was in need, they responded. People would sell what, right? The, that was a normal thing. Why? Because they loved people and they were a part of community. It's what community, it's what the church was always meant to be, right? If there's a need, other people meet the need and, and vice versa. It kind of goes back and forth. It's a community where people are loved and known. They're sharing life together where Christ is, is seen and the, the focal point of this kind of community and people's lives are being transformed in their midst, it's an incredible community. I love how it's, even at the end, it's sort of like, uh, as an aside, it just kind of says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's like people, they couldn't stop it, right? People were coming to know Jesus. They were seeing the community that existed, the relationships, the love. They were seeing people getting served and raised up and lifted up. They were seeing people coming to life with Jesus and in the community. They were learning to love and everything. And you couldn't keep them away from it. The Lord added to their number. People just kept coming day in and day out. That's the kind of life-giving community that we're made for real and transparent and loving relationships. Can I stop and ask a question? How are you doing in this area? Would you say that your life is characterized by living in that kind of community? Or if we're honest, we say, I think my life is all about fourth gear. I'm just going and doing and this kind of thing, as much as there, there are hours in the day and I have strength, and then I collapse at the end of the day and do it again. Can I suggest to you that if that's your pattern and that's my pattern, that we are going to miss out on so much. We're going to miss out on the life that God has for us. We're going to miss out. We're not going to reach our potential. We're not going to grow up into the fullness of Christ if we're living that way. Our families and our relationships are going to suffer in tremendous ways. Why? Because we are made for more. We're made for community. I was thinking this week and just uh, kind of a, a throwaway comment here, but man, if we're doing the series, right, it's called Breakout and uh, if you are here today and you are in need of a breakthrough in some area of your life, right, whether it be a, a pattern or a habit or a sin or something that you are stuck in and you can't seem to break free from, or uh, if there's some family stuff going on, relational stuff going on, I don't know, like it, it, it could be anything. Maybe there's some sort of a, a mountain that's before you or a giant that's before you and it is daunting. Maybe there's who knows, all kinds of things. Can I just suggest that if there's an area of your life that you need a breakthrough in, I don't think it's gonna happen in isolation. I doubt that it will happen on your own because that's not the way we're meant to live. Typically, when we move into isolation, we get separated. Typically, it doesn't go well for us. In the rest of our time, I'm gonna hit three things real quick. Um, that, uh, that just are, are the results or the benefits of when we choose to step into biblical, God-honoring community. And uh, I think it'll kind of make some of my case for me. And then we'll do a little bit of wrap-up at the end and we'll go from there. First thing is this, is, is as you and I choose to arrange our lives, make some space for second gear as we, as we are intentional and strategic about leaving space in our lives and setting up times where we can actually get to know people and 
let them get to know us and love and be loved and serve and be served. As we step into that kind of lifestyle, God brings growth and healing. Again, we like to think that we can grow up in Christ on our own, that, we, that in independence we can just go off by ourselves and get fixed and become whole and healthy and mature and missional and all that kind of stuff and that we can come back when we're all sparkly and perfect and all that kind of stuff because we don't want people to see our shortcomings. We don't want people to see our garbage or recognize how messed up we are. And so we'd rather just go off on our own and do that and then come back when everything's right. But you know what? That's just not the way it works. God heals us. God grows us in the context of community. In Ephesians 4, God paints a picture for us of community where each person is both contributing and receiving. Community uh, where people are both using their spiritual gifts and others are serving them with their spiritual gifts. It's, it's a picture of what, what the Bible refers to as the body of Christ, of all of us sort of living together in community and serving and loving and back and forth. And it says this, it says this in Ephesians 4, as this body is working together, it says, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, it says, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by the wind and teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into, into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, from Christ, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When we, when we turn towards God and towards one another, we end up growing. We become more like Christ. Spiritual growth happens in the context of community. Then, it says, as we each part does its work, then we will grow up into the fullness of Christ. Then we will grow and build ourselves up in love as each part does its work. It's part of how it's designed. Or James 5.16 is another example that I share from time to time, but I just think of where it's, it's fascinating. It's in the context of community. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Again, can you, can you pray by yourself? Can you, pray, can you confess just directly to God? Of course you can, but it's in, man, there's something powerful that happens in community. Healing and growth often, most often happens in the context of relationships, in the context of community. It's one of the reasons why we spend so much of our time and energy and effort on growth groups and encourage everybody to be a part of growth groups because we believe that's where the good stuff happens, right? That's where the good stuff happens. It's when we can get honest and where we can be transparent and we can love and be loved and back and forth. It happens best, life change happens best in the context of community. Second one, we experience God's love in a fresh and in a powerful kind of way. First John 4, 12, I, I just think this is a fascinating one. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. There's sort of a completing, a completion of God's love in us as we learn to love one another. That, it's a little baffling to me, but I have to say it's also been my experience. We come to know and understand and are filled with his love in a much broader way as we learn to live in community and loving relationship with one another. 
I can remember uh, being in college and uh, getting together with a group of four other guys. We got together twice a week, and uh, we, did, we did some Bible study stuff together. We worshiped together. We prayed for each other. We shared life together. We'd have meals together, that kind of stuff. And I have to say, it was the first time in my life that I think I got a glimpse of unconditional love. I'd never seen anything like it before. These guys loved me when I screwed up and I totally blew it. They, they loved me when I was blew up at them and was mean to them. They loved me if I was doing great and if I wasn't doing great. It was constant. They would push me and challenge me sometimes in love. They had my best interest in mind. They had my back uh, in, in all things. And I have to say, man, it was the first time that I was sort of like, man, I have never sensed this before. One of the first times another guy has cried for me because he loved me so much, just speaking into me. I was like, man, I've never seen something like this before. I came out of that group with a different picture in my mind of what I wanted in marriage because I'd never known God's love like that so powerfully through another person. I'm like, man, I want to I wanna give that to my wife. I want to have that be the focal point in our home, having God's love be present. I can remember somebody saying one time, uh, sometimes you just need to see Jesus with skin on, Right? And I think it's true. I think sometimes we can read all about God's love and we can hear it on our own, but so often we will experience it through somebody else, through, a, through Jesus with skin on. He'll use somebody else to open up our eyes and open up our hearts to say, you know what, I think I am loved by God, right? Like this is, I used to know it, but now I've experienced it. Or so often, I think sometimes this happens in the context of corporate worship, where we're worshiping together, and we get, a, we get a real sense and an experience with the living God in our own lives, right? Where we're like, man, I felt his love. Not just knew it, but I experienced it in the context of community. So often, that's the case. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead. Let's skip that one. Go to the third one. All right. The third one says, uh, just we see and know Jesus more. It's the scripture we started out with in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with him. There I am right in their midst. I'm right before them, right there. And again, he's everywhere, right? He's with us when we're uh, at home. He's with us when we're in the room, when we're under our bed cleaning, when we're in the storage, right? He's, he's everywhere. And yet there's something powerful where we come to see and know and experience him more in the context of other Christ-honoring relationships. It's a powerful thing. There's a man by the name of Miroslav Volf. We had to read a book of his uh, in seminary called Exclusion and Embrace. And, and he uh, writes this whole book and makes the case for saying, you know what? Human beings constantly in every day and every moment have decision to make of what kind of person they want to be, how they're going to live their lives. And they're like, even, even if you don't think you're choosing, you're choosing this every moment of every day. Either you will uh, you know, open up your heart and your life. You will prioritize and make room for relationships. You'll turn towards people, right? Eye to eye and soul to soul and share your life and your heart with them. You will learn to love and serve and honor and build up others and, and, and even receive that uh, back, which is sometimes harder for those of us uh, that understand our own pride, right? I mean, that's, that's a real thing, but you live in that kind of relationship. Either we'll choose a life of embrace, is what he calls that, or we will close our heart off to people. We'll get swept away by task. We'll just spend our life in fourth year. We'll just go, 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 do, do. We will not prioritize relationship and we'll experience and live in what he calls exclusion. 
We will shut ourselves off. Maybe we'll have some polite third gear conversation. We'll talk to people at the office. We'll smile. We'll say the right things. We'll shake hands, whatever. But we will never really experience the kind of community that we're born for. He says every moment of every day, you are choosing one or the other. I wonder what your life would show that you believe about this. I wonder what my life would show. Are you a person that is choosing the path of embrace again and again and again, choosing to prioritize and value community with other Christ followers, with other people around you? Are you loving and being loved and serving and being served? Is that, is that if, if we look at your calendar on your phone, we, would we see those things prioritized? Or by default, are you getting swept towards the, the path of exclusion? Exclusion or embrace? I called the message today breaking out of isolation, but to be honest, friends, it's not even something, I think, I think stepping out of isolation is the breakthrough, right? I mean, I think it's transformational for our lives, but it really comes down to decisions of how we're choosing to live, of how we're organizing and structuring our lives, if we're willing to create space and prioritize relationships, second gear, focused, turning towards one another kind of things. It's what we're made for. It's how life works best, but you have to choose. And so the application for today is not rocket science. What do you suppose it is? Would you choose it, right? Would you, would you do it? We are coming into summer, right? Which is, I think, the easiest and best opportunity ever to, to do these kinds of things, to have, to have other people over, to have a picnic, to cook out, to go out to a game together, to go do something together, to be together, and then choose to intentionally take steps to move towards people, to turn your chair towards somebody else, right? And connect and share hearts. Ask them questions. Get to know them. Find out what makes them tick, what they're excited about, what they're passionate about. Find out what they're struggling with. Would you pray for them and let them pray for you? Would you share what's really happening on the inside and not just keep people at a distance, not just choose the path of exclusion, but would you take some steps to move towards the life of embrace? We've been learning uh, about this, and I've been challenged about this a little bit from the Holcombs and the Bastines. I think they do a great job of choosing the path of embrace. Again, they value these relationships. We've gone out with them a couple of times. Uh, they'll go out to lunch all the time after, after church, and they're just doing life together. They're sharing life with each other, and so we've been adopting some of those things. They introduced us to a place, it's called uh, Purdue's, right? Purdue is it's a place in uh, in Tremont that has half price pizza and wings on Sundays, and so it's one of those things that we said, hey, let's start let's start making that a regular thing. Where after church we just go with some people and go and we have pizza and wings, and we, just as a way to kind of move towards each other carving out some space for those things. It's one of the reasons we do growth groups or we do social events. Uh, as a church, we're trying to carve out some space for all of us to prioritize and say, would you show up? Would you move towards some people? Yes, some of it's third gear, some of it's social, but even in the midst of that, would you take some moments and really get to know some people? Really start walking towards others because, man, that's when we grow and come to life. It really is. It's where we experience greater and greater levels of freedom. It's where we come to know God's love and his presence for us more and more. And it's the kind of community that you and I are born for. Would you take some steps this summer to prioritize those things, to choose the path of embrace? Let's close in prayer. God, that's uh, our cry. That's our prayer this morning. Lord, forgive us for 
so easily and so often just getting swept away and just making our life all about achieving and doing and task and all kinds of stuff when the reality is I don't know that it's ever gonna I don't know it'll matter at the end of our lives if our grass was perfectly cut or our dishes were all done but uh, at the end of our lives it will be about relationships our relationship with you and uh, how we've invested in relationship with others so God I pray that you help us to live in light of that teach us to choose the path of embrace God may May we become known, may Ignite Church become known like the early church was as a, as a place where people loved one another deeply. As a place where, as a community where your presence is seen and known, where your love and your peace and your grace is poured out and is enjoyed day by day in the lives and in the relationships of each person in the church. God, I pray that you teach us, you help us to prioritize and choose space. Help us to say no even to some of the things we say no.